This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Emory University professor Mark Bauerlein discusses his book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, From Stupefied Youth to Dangerous Adults. He argues that the lack of general civics knowledge by millennials poses a threat to America's political and social institutions. The web, it's spoon-feeding everything to you. It's taking everything. So, so when you read a text online, one of the great innovations was the hypertext with the link. So that if you're reading a book and, and there's an unusual word in there, you can click on the word and it'll tell you what the word means. It's too easy, all right? You're not going to remember it. Uh, why do you have to memorize? I mean, people wrote this. I quote them in the book. In 2007, 2008, why do they need to know this stuff? They can always look it up on Google. He's interviewed by The Federalist's culture editor, Emily Jasinski. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mark, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up is a follow-up to a book you wrote in 2008, also about the dumbest generation. So if you could start just by telling us how you define this cohort of young Americans, and now not so young Americans, less young Americans, that you've written about, I think that would be a helpful place to begin. Uh, yes. The, the term, first of all, The Dumbest Generation, I steal from Philip Roth. It's in one of his novels. And he's referring to young, young people. And so I, I took that in 2008 to apply to the millennials. Mm. The millennials are roughly early 80s, uh, born in the early 80s up until the late 90s to 2000. They were back in those heady years of Web 2.0, <laughs> uh, the first decade of the third millennium. Uh, Web 2.0 was giving people more activity online. They wouldn't just be passive consumers. They could kind of talk back. Social media grew. YouTube, whose original motto was broadcast yourself. Uh, you could write customer reviews. So it was a more interactive medium, and the millennials were said to lead the way. These 15-year-olds in their bedrooms in 2005, they were the early adopters. They were the digital natives. They'd grown up with, with the tools, and they were ready to innovate and improvise with these new forms of this Facebook thing that has come along. MySpace was a few years before uh, the texting would come along soon. The iPhones, the handheld devices, as they were called. Twitter started, I think, 2007, uh, 2008. Twitter began. And they were exploiting the tools so that, you know, boomers like me, we get one of these handhelds. We, we turn it over to our kids and say, will you please, you know, arrange this thing for me? Teach me how to use it. And there was so much hype in those years about the millennials. Uh, here come the millennials, uh, as, as it was often broadcast. They're going to change the workplace. They're going to change shopping, uh, how we communicate, how we socialize with one another. And the cheerleading was amplified throughout the teaching profession. Many journalists, many, uh, uh, many intellectuals were talking about the millennials. Politicians were pushing getting unwired class or wired classrooms, uh, I should say, and I stepped in, and a few others, and looked at this and said, no, no, this is awful. Mm. It is terrible for a 15-year-old to have all these tools of self-expression in hand. That one who can walk around with 250 photos of himself right here <laughs> in the pocket, very bad. Uh, to lie in bed at night with the cell phone on all night long, so that it awakens you at two in the morning with a picture that has come through so you can gossip a little bit, very bad. Sending out 3,000 text messages a month, which is what happened by 2010 with teens with a cell phone. What about, what about all the other leisure activities like reading books, like reading newspapers? 
watching TV that has intelligent conversation and radio, overhearing your parents talking Mm -hmm. about current events, politics, grown-up matters, going to historic sites, going to museums, browsing through bookstores, uh, not just reading books, but going to the library for that. Public library is free. Parents, take your kids to the library. Uh, But so is Facebook. (laughs) uh, There you go. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of libraries were really transforming themselves into information centers, as as they were called. So when in 2007, I go into my library at my Emory University, where where I was teaching, had a great job, a great school. Uh, You go into the library and every computer terminal is occupied by uh, a, a cheery sophomore. And you go up into the stacks, and I could lie down, and it's like a morgue. It's silent. I could, I could take a two-hour nap. No one would bother me. Come on, you guys, you've got to read. You've got to find the books. And I, you know, I, I don't mean all classics. Uh, you know, read, read sports books. Read, read biographies of your rock and roll stars or, or, or celebrities. Get a book in hand. But this phone thing, it's, it's a problem. So I wrote the book, The Dumbest Generation. The full title is that How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30. Uh, <laughs> and I think the timing was right. It, it kind of took off. Uh, I got lucky with people sort of thinking, you know, uh, this digital age, the, the young, all with these little screens in hand, maybe not such uh, a good thing. And one of the things I predicted in the book was that with the 15-year-old, always at the screen, online, logged on, tuned in, is now enveloped in youth culture 24-7 in a way that had never happened in human history before. They are not getting the tools of Great novels, great stories, great characters, great music, great events from the past, great role models, the wisdom of tradition. They're not getting that. And that is going to make their adulthood more difficult for them. They're not getting the equipment for grown-up circumstances of life. And when they get older, we're going to see the, the fallout. And this. that's particularly interesting given that those sort of heady days, as you describe them, of the mid aughts and, and into the Obama era, there was a glow that big tech especially had. And we were told these tools, and you can see these tools now, actually do put us face to face with the wisdom of the past Indeed. at a moment, right? We can pull up Winston Churchill's speeches on our YouTube apps, on our phones within seconds. If you have Spotify or Apple Music, you can pull off. You can pull up, you know, Wagner's great works. Um, you can listen to Beethoven. You can confront the sort of wisdom of the past very easily. It's it's very accessible, more accessible than ever before. And that was part of the pitch that people were making with these That's technologies. Right. Why did they end up being used? Um, and and the book. What's very interesting about this this new book, The Dumbest Generation Grows Up, is is you're charting the trajectory of this technology and of the generation that it shaped, the first generation that it shaped. So why have the tools been used differently? You're exactly right. Emily, it's all out there. You have the knowledge of the universe at at your fingertips now. You can go into the museums. I would bring material into my classes. Like if I'm teaching the Beat Generation writers, (laughs) I've got Jack Kerouac on the Steve Allen show in 1959. While Steve Allen is there at the piano doing a little jazz tinkling. Uh, uh, Kerouac is there reading from one of his books, sitting at the piano. It's actually a very powerful and poignant moment of what happens there. And it's very important for beat literature, actually, because it's the performance of it that was very important in, in, in that time. So it's all there. Absolutely. And we heard the hype in the 1990s. There was something called the digital divide that people were quite worried about, because here we've got this miraculous instrument of learning online. The connectivity would put you in in touch with the masters, with the genius, with knowledge, with science. And poor kids are not going to have it. They're not going to be able to afford the phones and the hookups. Their schools are not going to have the wiring. 
And so the achievement gap is only going to get worse. <laughs> and so there were things put in, in uh, some of the acts of Congress that would put more money into wiring these, these, these schools for in, in low-income areas. And now we have another digital divide. And I talk about this in the current book. It is the low-income kids who are having more screen time. It's flipped. Right? It's flipped. They are spending more. It's exploded in the last 10 years, the amount of online time that low-income kids have. And the upper-income families are spending more and more time curbing their kids being online, getting them away from the screen. And that, that this because they see the problem. I mean, the Silicon Valley titans who designed a lot of these tools, uh, you know, the New York Times reported a ver- some very good stories a couple of years ago by Nellie Bowles, mm-hmm. and I quote them extensively in the book, interviewing a lot of the Silicon Valley leaders like Chris Anderson, the former editor of Wired magazine, saying, these screens for our kids are as bad as a drug. Mm-hmm. They are addictive, and the Silicon Valley designers of them hired consultants who are experts in addiction and attention, what they call persuasive design, to get people onto these sites and hold them there, especially the kids. Now, you, you, you asked, but wait a minute, it's all great, the stuff out there. But, you know, 15-year-olds, 15-year-olds don't want to go to the, uh, you know, the National Gallery of Art and, and look at paintings by old masters. They want to connect with other 15-year-olds. That's the social nature of adolescence. They're more interested in what happened at the party last Saturday than what happened at Waterloo uh, 200, 205, six years ago. Uh, so the social impulses and all the insecurities of the adolescent ego, you know, the confusion, I'm not quite sure who I am, my identity is just really beginning to form. I'm just now coming into contact with the big wide world out there. And it can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, an uncertain anxiety-ridden existence. You can surround yourself with a world of pleasing affirmations. If you can go into the bedroom, shut the door, and you've got, you've got the phone, you've got the laptop, you've got the video game console, which you can play with others your age. The social aspect of video games is very important for, for boys in particular. You've got the TV on playing adolescent TV shows, you have music that you could be listening to, you're creating what in 2010 was called the Daily Me, the Daily Me, which is a world that is highly reflective of who you are or who you aspire to be, what you desire yourself to be, is the Daily Me, and you've got the power now to manufacture this reality in your room. If you don't like something coming something coming through these, these uh, uh, media, the inputs, well, you, you just block it. Mm. You unfriend that person. You're able to screen out the disagreeable, the contrary, the disruptive, the thing that heightens your anxiety, gone. The things that provide comfort and warmth and fun, they can come in. That's what they were able to create at, at age 15 in their room. It was a utopian space. Oh, How nice. And if only I could have done that I was when like, I was 15, doggone it. You know, in 2008, I was exactly 15 years old. <laughs> so this is all, uh, this is all very vivid. Um, and I, I do think that's really an, an interesting point, um, particularly about the sort of addictive nature of the technology. And, you know, humans are not going to choose to, uh, and especially children are not going to choose to, to root themselves. Um, and it's, it's less addicting, of course, to watch, let's say, Churchill speeches or, or something of, of that point. But you, you write in this book that there's an absence of transcendence um, in the sort of millennial universe, the millennial moral universe. And, of course, uh, there, there's always a human longing for transcendence that's not being filled and it's not being provided by the moral universe so this, though, cuts a little bit deeper even than the technologies. It, it gets into um, a, a worldview that was sort of, and you write about this a, a bit, the, the foundation was laid 
by baby boomers, and these technologies in some ways capitalized on that. Yes. What is what is fundamentally responsible for the lack of transcendence? Is it the, the technology that millennials like Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey created, or you know, what are the roots that go beyond it? Well, let me, let me say just uh, about about that first point that you made. I'm I'm no better at age 15 than the millennials than than, than you were. <laughs> if I had these tools, I'd be doing the same thing. I already knew it all when I was 16. I didn't need to learn anything. I, 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 I got it. And I don't want to listen to my parents or some some guy with a, a round face and a mustache named Walter talking about Watergate. <laughs> oh, come on. But, but that wasn't the only screen in the house. There wasn't another screen for me to check into. There was only one phone in the house. We didn't have the term landline. And it had a cord. It, it had a cord. <laughs> you had to put your finger and, you know, turn seven times. And it wasn't private. It was in the kitchen. If I want to call a girl and try to mumble my way through, stumble my way into, into a date, I, you know, I was uncomfortable being, being around that with my older sister and my parents uh, around. Yuck. But I, so I couldn't go to my room. So this is not about the, the, the moral superiority of older generations to current ones. It's, we didn't have the tools to go with adolescence. To, to, to maintain our youthfulness, uh, peer pressure, youth culture, uh, adult stuff filtered into my life, whether I wanted it or not. Now, your big question about the transcendent orientation. Since the mid-20th century, we know the phenomenon of the rising uh, non-religious observance. Mm-hmm. Right, More and more people in recent years, refer to themselves as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who do not belong to any specific church. They may have some spiritual ideas of some kind, but it's not organized in any way. It's not ritualized. They don't work at any practical way into their lives. They don't pray on a regular basis. And this is carried over to the young, the progressive secularization of American society Mm -hmm. uh, has been going on for 60 some years, reinforced by Supreme Court decisions that, you know, no prayer in schools, things, things like that. And what the, what the media, what the digital media did was enforce that non-transcendent vision horizon uh, in very powerful ways at a very impressionable age. Because, as I said, the self-realization orientation of the social media, Mm. again, broadcast yourself, right? Right. My space. (laughs) Facebook is, you're you're fabricating, you're manufacturing the, the details of your life, right? You, you can now express yourself in ways, again, never, never before offered to people. And one of the things that the transcendent orientation does is carry you out of yourself. There's something bigger out there than me, than my life. I'm pondering eternity, right? The vastness of time and space, the metaphysical side the spiritual side of things. And when you're so darn distracted, Mm. when you're so connected to other people, it's easy for that transcendent horizon to be eclipsed. And just think about how often spiritual leaders, Jesus included, uh, must be alone. I must go off and be by myself. Because that's the place of contemplation. That's, that's where the prayer can, can happen in, in powerful ways. You know, there's a great scene in Huck Finn when, when Huck says, you can't pray a lie. It's, he's, he's, he's by himself. He's got to figure out what to do with Jim and this, this, this slave society that he's in. And, and it's like a, a powerful moment of contemplating alone, no one else and thinking about praying. If you're never alone, that search 
doesn't have to happen. And what social media did, Mark Zucker, I can't remember if it was Mark Zuckerberg or Reid Hoffman, the, the founder of LinkedIn, who said this, but we're trying to make it so you never have to be alone. Mm. Okay? You never have to be lonely. And yet loneliness has increased. Lonely. That's a very good point. That, that you're, you're exactly right. Uh, people realize, you know, all this Facebook stuff, it actually doesn't make people feel that much better, at least not in a, in a, in a long term. But the being alone is one of the things that helps you to, uh, to ponder the bigger things, mm. right? To get out of current, current social events, to get away from the distraction and the diversions, and think about, you know, put away childish things and, and think about what is serious, what is, what is eternal, what is universal, what are the profundities of life. And sometimes you've got to get off by yourself in order to do that. Now, the problem is loneliness can be absolutely debilitating for a 16-year-old. You know, I was terribly lonely when I was young. It's awful to be lonely. And being alone can, can put you in a desperate condition. And who wouldn't want to escape into contact, right? I mean, that, that's particularly difficult for an adolescent whose fragility is, you know, psychic fragility is, is there, who doesn't have foundation, many of the foundations that grown-ups would have that they can rely upon. I mean, things like having a child, of your own, mm. having to take care of an infant, that's a foundation for your life. You can't worry about yourself quite as much. You start thinking about time in a different way when you've got to take care of a one-year-old because you're thinking about that one-year-old's future. In a way, you're not even thinking about your own future. It's quite different. Uh, that form of self-sacrifice, that can lead to, again, pondering the bigger things in, in life. So the, the web, all the social media, really just accentuated, I think, the, the secularization process in America, pulling people away from the transcendent orientation toward sure. things. And the problem is I, I think that Prayer is a healthy thing to do. I think that prayer, and I'm not saying which religion, okay? Just whatever, again, the, the, the metaphysical, the divine happens to be. But working prayer, the, the ordinary exercise on a daily level where you've got to be alone for some period of the day. You've got to get out of the stream. You've got to be by yourself to contemplate Remember, the, 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 the root of the word contemplate is the same as temple. So uh, that requires uh, a little separation from, from your social network, which is what everything in an adolescent's life opposes. You've got to get back in. One of the things that prompted this first book was seeing the, these kids leaving class. They've been disconnected for 45, 50 minutes, out of the loop. When you were a professor, you noticed this with the yes. students. So at the break, out on the quad, they're all checking in. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's going on? A message is coming through. Are people meeting somewhere? Any, any photos out there? And I did not see joy on their faces. I saw a little consternation. Okay, mm-hmm. well, What's going on? And that's part of that youth insecurity uh, that the social media plays upon very, very closely. And speaking about your point, um, you, you reference spiritual leaders and you reference prayer. And someone you actually organize a chapter around somewhat is Malcolm X. And you use a, a fascinating description for Malcolm, for Malcolm X. You describe his intellectual confidence. And I thought that descriptor was really, really interesting in this context. Can you expound upon what you mean when you write about the intellectual confidence of somebody like Malcolm X? Malcolm X goes into prison, Malcolm Little. Uh, he is he's a horrible human being. He is a thug. He is a thief. He exploits people. He's violent. And 
He goes into prison, and the nickname they have for him is Satan. He likes that nickname. He enjoys it. And there's a whole chapter of him going into prison. It's called Satan. And what then follows over the next 30 or 40 pages is, I believe, one of the most remarkable conversion stories in all of American history. He changes so profoundly that he talks about himself as another person. This is the way converts say, I was changed. I was transformed. I look back upon the guy before my change, another person entirely. He's a stranger to me. Now, what happened to do this? Well, he goes into prison, and all of his street smarts really don't fly. For one thing, he says, I had a working vocabulary of about 200 words. I couldn't say a sentence without some profanity in it. And that worked very well on the street. He was very good. He was a good hustler. He was very smart, you can tell, very canny about how to handle people. In prison, I'm just Satan. But there's another man in prison, an older man, black man, who speaks thoughtfully, deliberately. He has knowledge. And Malcolm Little looks around and says, boy, these other prisoners, they listen to him. They respect him. The white guards listen to him and learn from him and respect him. And he kind of takes Malcolm X under his wing a little bit and advises him, you've got to learn some things, you know. You've got to grow a little bit. So Malcolm X says, okay, maybe I'll read a few books. He tries to read the books. He can't understand them because he doesn't have the vocabulary. So he gets the dictionary, and he starts copying it word for word. Aardvark, you know, writing the words out copied the whole thing, months and months of simply transcribing the dictionary. We would see this. Oh, my goodness, what drudgery. For him, it was eye-opening. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, the dictionary is kind of like an encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. All these words contain so much knowledge. And he was hooked. He would stay up at night, and by the light coming through his, his window, he, he, he would copy it out. He ruined his eyes. Right? He, he didn't wear, we know the picture of him wearing glasses. He didn't wear glasses before going into prison. He has to have glasses now because of what he's done to his eyes. But he wouldn't trade that for the world. And then he starts reading literature, philosophy, history, politics. He comes under the nation of Islam, you know, Elijah Muhammad, and that gives him a myth of the past that gives a meaning to his life. He says, I understand myself in my life now because I have put my existence into a big historical model that includes transcendence. Mm -hmm. You have stories of what happened with white people and people of color that he then finds explanatory. And that is what gives him confidence. I know something now and I've done my homework. A lot of homework. I read Shakespeare. I read the Bible very carefully. He becomes Muslim, so he's not Christian. But this is the lesson of Malcolm X that I provide in the book as a model for millennials now, what you must do. Christians are wrong. White people are evil. That doesn't make him say, I'm canceling you. I'm, I'm shunning you. I'm getting you out of my life. It makes him want to learn about them. He sits across the table from white men in these news shows, you know, in the last couple years of his life. And you can see the way he converses with them. He wants to know what's going on in their heads. He he doesn't say, racists, bigots, I'm out of here. No, he wants the exchange because he has what you mentioned, the confidence. He speaks clearly, slowly, deliberately. He wears a coat and tie. He said in prison, I will never use bad words again. No more profanity. Okay? I'm not going to do that anymore. And you can see he's, he's, he's settled. He's got a foundation within. And it has happened through this conversion experience. And I mean deep psychological emotional, spiritual change within him. 
and he did the work. Okay? It was a reading plan. Right? It gave him a faith. It gave him a historical interpretation of the present. And you know, I quote earlier in the book Matthew Arnold, the 19th century critic, social thinker, who said, in this age where we feel religion is already fraying in the Victorian age, people find a lot of chaos going on. Mm-hmm. There was a time of great change in Victorian England. Railroads coming along, industrialization happening, a lot of you know, populations becoming on, on the fringes of, of, of existence. And he said, converse with the ancients. Okay? The great writers of Greece and Rome and all through Shakespeare has a steadying influence upon you in the present. Okay? It, it gives you a framework to take in the rush of news, current events, big changes going on from day to day. You need, you need that steadying influence. That's what civilization, we'll just call it civilization, can give you. To fall in love and to be rejected, it's going to happen. Okay? You know, if you've got the story of Dido and Aeneas, if you've got Odysseus leaving Calypso and her, her mournfulness, the great stories of love and disappointment, probably up to the great Gatsby, it just gives you a reservoir of understanding. It's not that it makes you feel better, less rejected, but it gives you a place to interpret what, what's happened to you in, again, a steadier way. So it's not all just me, 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 my, my, my life, oh, how I'm suffering. It, it, it's more than just you know, your story, your, your, your present. If you've got the Sermon on the Mount to come back to, if you've got the story of Job, right? if you see the story of Cain and Abel, the story of envy, it just gives you, again, that steadying influence, right? that framework, so that you don't need to run to the text. This happened. These are, these are better resources for adult disappointment than your friends. Right. Well, so I want to talk about that because the dictionary uh, is a technology in and of itself. And we don't think of the dictionary as a technology. We certainly don't think of uh, the mass production of of written Bibles, uh, printed Bibles, as a technology. But they very much are. And actually, in the scope of human history, they're a relatively new technology. Printed books are a relatively new technology. Um, you couldn't always just listen to Wagner. Uh, you would have to go see Wagner performed, mm-hmm. or you would have to uh, just catch it on on vinyl. Um, and even that, again, feels ancient, and it's in Urban Outfitters as a vintage technology, but it's pretty <laughs> new. And so yeah. I guess there's this question about why these technologies that have cropped up over the course of the last couple of decades, in what ways are they fundamentally different than the ideas of, you know, novels, which there was moral panic about at certain points in in history. What separates the technology of Western civilization? Actually, the earliest printed book came out of China about 1,100 years ago. What separates these things from the last 20 years in social media and smartphones? Uh, Your first point. A, A cheap paperback is a remarkable technology. Absolutely. It weighs a few ounces. You slip it in your pocket. You toss it on the ground. It's not going to break. It costs, you know, a used one will cost you 25 cents. And it contains hours of entertainment, hours of diversion. That's an amazing technology. It, it's great. Now, why these, the screen technology? Well, let's just take... Uh, the one, the overstimulation factor. Okay. When you read the book, you have to imagine, right? You have to think about what's going on that isn't provided by all the visualization taking place. So that right there, 
is an exercise of imagination. And we need to understand imagination, memory, all, all, the, all the mental work that, that the mind, the brain does. It, these are exercises, they're muscles that you have to operate in order to improve them. That's why, I mean, in class, uh, I would have students memorize poems and then they would recite them before, you know, before the class. It's terribly painful for them to do it, which made me double the assignments. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, when they would do it and they would sit down after having finished, a great look of accomplishment mm. and relief. I did it on their, on their faces. They were highly gratified that they, that they got through it. Now, I did it because, look, the web, it's spoon-feeding everything to you. It's taking everything. So, so th- when you read a text online, one of the great innovations was the hypertext with the link. So that if you're reading a book and, and there's an unusual word in there, you can click on the word and it'll tell you what the word means. That's too easy. Mm. All right? You're not going to remember it. Uh, why do you have to memorize? I mean, people wrote this. I quote them in the book. In 2007, 2008, why do they need to know this stuff? They can always look it up on Google. Right. You know, in the old days, you had to memorize the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> why memorize it? You can just, and there, and there it is. That is a failure of learning. Just to retrieve, information retrieval. Is that all the Gettysburg Address is? Don't you want to internalize it? Those sentences, four score and seven years ago, those should be in your head, not out there. You've got you to bring them in, memorize them. They become part of your sensibility, right? Lincoln did this with the Old Testament and the New Testament. How much of Lincoln's language is taken out of King James? I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like the... The, the, the water that he, that he swam in all the time, it made its way into his. That's, that doesn't happen now if it's just a matter of information retrieval. I mean, memorization, it, it's, a, it's sort of a, a pet thing for me. Memorization is you getting into another character because you can't recite an Emily Dickinson poem if you're not imagining her character. Right, her experience, her feelings. You, 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 you can't do it from the outside. You've got to get into, into it, and then the words come. You're using someone else's words. It boosts your vocabulary. And this is all very healthy for the narcissistic 16-year-old. That's a redundancy to do. Okay? Uh, uh, the, this technology saves young people from doing that work. They don't have to memorize the U.S. presidents in order. They don't have to memorize friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. This was, these were common activities in the past because that was, it, it, it gets in me and it stays inside me. The, the web makes it all external and it stays external. When I need it, I'll just call it up. I said, that's all, that, that's all that he's masterful lines of verse mean to you? Okay. What happened at Shiloh and Gettysburg? Are those, those are just going to be facts that you'll, you'll call? Don't you want to know the stories? Don't you want to know about the carnage that took place there? Mm. This, this is going to make you a more serious and interesting person if you've got these things inside you. So the And, of course, a better voter and citizen. That that and parent uh, ab- absolutely. Um, look at how the millennials took November 2016 trauma. They went two to one for for Hillary, and they couldn't believe that this orange-haired monster had was actually going into the White House. And you want to say to them. This is politics. You know, politics go like this. Do you think that you never, never lose? Do you think Obama was going to be your, your, your revered Obama? They went two to one for Obama in 08. Very important. George W. Bush and Al Gore 
pretty much split the youth vote. Ronald Reagan famously crushed the youth vote. So it was only after these digital tools came along that the the youth vote skewed Democrat. And it's pretty much stayed that way. Obama's rate went a little down in, in 2012. They were disappointed with him because they tur- he turned out to be a politician, not a savior. Guys, I mean, of course. Uh, and he was an early promoter of the technologies that are making my generation quite miserable. He, <laughs> they, were, they were very skillful in the 08 campaign on using the web to get young people out to vote and to, to contribute as well. Howard Dean actually was, was, was innovative on this. And the Republicans, as they always are, were way behind on, on campaign strategy. Uh, but look at how they responded. Uh, it was trauma. That's a sign that you are not good citizens. Because, look, surprises have happened before. When, when McKinley was shot and Teddy Roosevelt entered the White House in 1901, people said, what? This nutty cowboy character is going to be in the White House? They said the same thing they said about Donald Trump. This happens in, in American politics. It happens in, in, in an open society. You're going to get, you know, this up and down, and you're going to be appalled sometimes. So what do you do? Well, you organize. You, 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 you do what Stacey Abrams did in, in 2020. Very good. You get out there. You go door to door. You mobilize a vote. That's the democratic process. What did they do? We're going to march in the streets. We're going to light fires. We're going to resist. Well, resist what? Uh, just resist. You know, someone put a huge banner in, in my neighborhood off the townhouse, a big black banner hanging off the town. It's huge with those six letters in white. Resist. That's not policy. Okay? That, that, that's actually anti-democratic. And we saw how much anti-democratic activity there was in 17, 18, and 19. So there, there, there's the bad citizenship taking place. Sometimes you lose. Well, they say, well, why do I ever have to lose? Okay? We're the good people. We're the ones who care. We are the ones who should be in charge of everything. That's not how a pluralistic society works. And this gets to the condition of the millennials now that they're, they've in, they're in their 30s. They were confident, optimistic, ambitious. They were going to college in, in record numbers. They were going to lead America into the 21st century. Well, now they were the most tolerant generation <laughs> in history. This was often said back in, in 07, 08. And now on the surveys, one, uh, rates of depression, narcissism, anxiety are up. Suicide is up. Uh, job dissatisfaction, very high. They're not tied to institutions. They, they, don't, they don't feel members of any, any particular institution. Only one-third of them consider themselves patriots. So they don't have a lot of country devotion. That's part of that transcendent horizon. Sure. Patriotism. Country, the nation. right? And Citizens of the world. Global citizens, right. of course, which is a meaningless term. Meaningless term. Uh, except as a negation of patriotism. Sure. That, 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 that's really what it means. It, it, is, it is against the wall, put it, put it that way. Um, but So they, they don't have patriotism. They high job dissatisfaction rates. They're not getting married and forming families at nearly the rate of uh, the boomers did. One-third of millennial men by age 40, I quote the Urban Institute study, uh, one-third of millennial men by age 40 will never have married. They'll never marry. And probably they, ne- they probably never will. That's actually a population problem, population you know, ma- maintenance uh, issue. You want to tell the millennials, well, you know, what do you think is going to happen to your Social Security? Hmm. Mine's okay. Because of you. Uh, thank, thank, I want to thank you, Emily, so for, for my social, social security payments uh, when, when they start coming in a few years. But uh, also, they are the most intolerant group. Uh, on, and this is self-reported. Uh, they have a more vindictive sense of life so that if they see some injustice going on, a, even a microaggression, they want that culprit to pay. They want to see justice done, got to be punished. And this is why they lead the way on the cancel culture issue. They will sign a petition with 2,000 others to get a stranger fired 
for for telling some dumb sexist joke uh, on 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 Facebook or, or or whatever. So things are not going well for the millennials in middle age. For some, they are. I mean, I'm generalizing here. We're talking about about statistical rates of things, but we've got a downturn, certainly one that wouldn't have been predicted by the cheerleaders in 2005. By the people who, in, in some cases, came out in opposition to the thesis you raised in the initial book. Luddite, grandpa, get off my lawn, uh, you, you know, the, the curmudgeon. My, my response to that was, you're darn right. You know, I mean, that's that's the job of the elders. You're supposed to rebuke and chide <laughs> the the young, uh, the adolescents for being adolescents. And that actually helps them grow up. It's I think it's a healthy thing for there to be tension, some tension between the generations. And it's a healthy thing for the young to talk back, you know, to say, you know, things have changed a little bit. You're a little too grooved, uh, you old fogey. And you need to you need to open up a little bit. And I, I I got a lot of I still get some emails from people a lot of young people. If you write a book insulting ninety three million Americans, you got to stand up, take a little heat. Who have tools of self expression as you write at their disposal Email, in every right second there. of the day. You know, it only, it only <laughs> yes. takes a few minutes. And I, I actually responded to every single one. And often when we got past you know the four letter words, uh, the exchange was pretty good. And one of the favorite things for me to happen was when I had to say to some some clever uh, sophomore, you're right on that. Yeah, I overplayed that point in that in that chapter. You got me on that one. Yes, that's what should that's what should happen. Right. So uh, I, I was happy to be proven wrong because to prove me wrong, you gotta engage. You gotta make arguments. You gotta be like Malcolm X, sitting there and listening and then responding with evidence and, and argument. And this is what too many of them lack the equipment to do now at age 33. And I think that it's making them unhappy. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you're right. The data are depressing, even if millennials overstate their plight. And I think that's actually very poignant um, because what you predicted has sort of tragically come to fruition just a little bit over a decade before I would be remiss if I didn't ask. You're, you're writing the first book in this climate of economic despair, or the book comes out in that climate of economic despair. To what extent did the recession either exacerbate or have come into play in this formula of millennial despair that seems in, unavoidable and, and undeniable at this point in 2022 uh, there is a lot of debt. There are lower levels of home ownership. There are low, low, lower levels of marriage in, in ways, arguably, yep. that are because of that. Right. So how much does the, the sort of economic climate that smacked millennials right as they were coming of age and, and entering their adult lives, um, what, to what extent is that a factor in this? A- a- Emily, you guys got a raw deal. You got a raw deal. I mean, there, there's for, for some of you, you were told, go to college, go to college. You've got to go to college to be a success. The, the second Bush administration and the Obama administration pushed universal college heavily. Well, you guys listened. Universities jacked up tuition. Mm. You got the loans. You got out of college. And the glorious success didn't happen. Those fantastic jobs weren't there for, for many of you. So you're saddled with the debt for, for quite a while. So that's one, one way. Another way is just the broad globalization agenda that has hollowed out the middle class. Right. And the working class, the manufacturing classes going back to the 80s, where we have an elite who has profited miraculously, extraordinarily, they've done well. You get out of that elite, that top 15%, and you got people a lot of the middle class treading water. Well, and as you write, they're also more likely to have children spending more time on these technologies and social medias, whereas people of greater wealth and privilege are taking their phones away from their kids. That's right. That's right. Knowing that uh, you're going to do better in college if you, if you build better reading habits uh, and, and study habits, if you get off out of the circuit. But the, so the, the raw deal, absolutely. 
at the same time that we flooded you with a pop culture of garbage, mm. right? The stupid music, the stupid movies, uh, the, the dumb TV shows, uh, all, the, all the reality stuff that we see, which crowded out better stories, right? better characters, better role models. We have peddled to you uh, so much mass consumption that doesn't prove inspiring, uh, that doesn't offer you any wisdom, that gives you bad moral instruction. Uh, it lowers your tastes. And that's why I begin this book with the line, what have we done to them? What have we done to them, giving you an awful world in so many ways? Materially awful with economic hardship, a tough job market, a lot of debt, um, expensive health care, expensive education. And then a culture and an education that didn't give you, again, good equipment to manage these difficulties. I mean, this is one thing, everything you're saying about uh, the, the dire circumstances of everyday life is, is true for a lot of millennials. I mean, where you guys want to live, look at housing costs there in Williamsburg or in Brooklyn, uh, you know, in, in, in Austin. Uh, housing isn't cheap in Madison, where, 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 where you said you were from and where I lived for a few years as a, as a, as a kid. Or, 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 or Boulder, or, you know, the Bay Area. Uh, all the more reason, then, that one needs the, the moral instruction, the wisdom, the, the, the transcendent consciousness to make these vicissitudes more bearable. Right? We had a depression. Think, think about 1930, depression. Okay? Polio, Jim Crow. Life was, life was very hard mm. then. Uh, today, what would make the, what would make an unsatisfying job easier purpose purpose actually purpose meaning and purpose all the stories about people with unsatisfying jobs death of a salesman sure stories of uh people struggling against absolutely abominable circumstances you know don't look for meaning and purpose in utopian ventures, such as racial justice, social justice, these cloudy kind, kinds of uh, uh, devotions that will produce a world with all happiness, that will let everyone be whatever he wants to be. This is the way the world ought to be. And that leads them, in the absence of this other wisdom, civilization, into uh, joining the marches and smashing windows. That's just an, ex an extreme case, but it happens. Uh, cancel culture. You know, I'm going to hammer, hammer these people. Take away their jobs, their livelihoods, make them disappear. Read George Orwell, mm -hmm. okay? Read some of the anti-totalitarian. Read, read, read the totalitarian histories. Uh, read Solzhenitsyn. Read about Robespierre. Millennials believe themselves to be pretty morally pure. So did Robespierre. Sure. He was the incorruptible. That was his, his nickname. Uh, the instrument of tyranny was the Committee on Public Safety in France. Okay? They believed in what they were, they believed they were creating a better society. And they would move toward a perfect society. Well, look, look what it, look what it, slipped into a bloodbath, right? This would uh, give them warning signs. The, the kind of knowledge of limits that 
has to be retained in this fallen world that we inhabit. Or you're going to end up doing awful things. And one of the tragic conditions of life is very good people and well-intentioned people can end up doing awful things. Sure. Well, Mark, as we come to the end of our time, on that sort of pessimistic note, uh, <laughs> let's hope this is uh, slightly less pessimistic, although I, 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 to some extent, think that's unavoidable. unavoidable. Is this a hole that we can dig out of? Um, what are the indications with Gen Z, the generation after millennials? Is this a hole that it can be dug out of in time to sort of rescue uh, the next generation, the generation after that? Uh, well, well, one pessimistic note and then an optimistic note. The <laughs> pessimistic note is that the tools for millennials were liberation. We're out in front. We can do things that no one else has been able, ever been able to do before. Gen Z doesn't have that belief. Mm. They're not on, on the vanguard because the tools, I mean, Facebook is so routine. It's old hat. Yes, it's not TikTok. Point. Nothing. <laughs> so Gen Z doesn't see these tools as somehow ennobling them, empowering them in any unique way. They actually see the tools as uh, fun, entertainment, but also surveillance. They feel they're being watched, and they are being watched, in the ways older generations weren't. And what that means is that the natural habits of rebelliousness, the mischievousness, the recalcitrance of every adolescent, you got, you got to rebel a little bit in order to come into your own. Well, some of that rebelliousness is just going to end up being expressed in politically incorrect ways. Mm. It's against the established, you know, the... The, the conventional ways of thinking now, which are very much politically correct, that can get them into trouble. So that if you're going to college, you don't want to do anything that's going to make the college admissions office retract your, your offer. If you want to get a job at a, at a top firm, they're going to check you out. They're going to look through your social media. They're going to type you into Google. Have you got any pictures out there? Have you said anything on Twitter that we, we need to worry about? Are you going to do anything that is going to be proved to be embarrassing to our law school before we admit you. So I worry that the the ambitious Gen Zers they kind of keep their head down. Hmm. You know, a little too conformist. You know, I mean, uh, uh, they're they're going to want to stay out of trouble. And I think we got to let young people get in a little trouble sure. now and then. You know, they, they, you don't you don't kill the spirit of of youth here. We we you know we argue with it, but we don't you know we don't hammer it. Uh, so, but here's the, the, the optimistic thing is all the signs of unhappiness among the millennials show that this formation didn't work. What we've got to do is present to them a different model of life, of growth. Building your, your social media network, this isn't a great ambition. This isn't the way to go in order to become success, success in life. Uh, uh, watching great films of great stories. Watching Laurence Olivier's Richard III. That's good stuff. Okay, It's mesmerizing. Uh, about a villain, a horrible, horrible guy um, who talks to you in a very uh, intimate way. You're my friend. Interesting. But Malcolm X is your role model not for what he ended up believing. I don't share his Nation of Islam beliefs at, at all. But the, the model of how to make yourself into a, a more astute, morally and intellectually grounded person. Malcolm X had a certain contentment after prison, even though he's in the midst of all the, you know, the, the struggle and everything, a personal solidity that he didn't have before. This is why I, I end the book with him. He's an example for you. To, this is where you, where you really find purpose and meaning in your life. You need a real religion. He was, a, he was devout. He would pray. You need a real religion where you ritualize your belief in actual practice. You need to read great books. You need to watch great movies. Uh, not, not, you know, Marvel junk. And it's time, it's time to grow up. You know, this is what all, all the people watching here, find that young person in your life. 
find someone and push the better things. Sure. Right? Uh, you know, follow St. Paul's, uh, uh, you know, ad- advice. You know, whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is good, think on those things. Pass that on and show them there is so much better stuff. Right. You live in the wake of greatness, of genius, of brilliance, of heroism. Sure. You're in the shadow of that civilization. That should be where you place your existence. That, that, that would be, and, and I think it can be done. Let's hope so. <laughs> Mark Bauerlein, author of The Dumbest Generation, grows up. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emily. You were great. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.